Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. This morning we begin with our Advent series. We have titled The Birth Announcement. Looking at the familiar story of the birth of Jesus Christ and God's gift to us in Christ, we're doing so looking at different aspects that are common to any birth announcement. This morning we begin with the name, something that is pretty much essential on any birth announcement. If you were to receive one and it only said, it's a boy, you would have questions. You would continue to have questions uh, about the person that sent you the birth announcement or about the child that was born to them uh, because the name is something that we are interested in, something that um, helps us to feel like it is a more complete information. So this morning we kick off our Advent series with the name. Now, our reading, our text this morning is Matthew 1.21, but for our reading, we will begin our, in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke, woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to your word, we do pray that you would speak to us during this time that we commit ourselves to listening for your voice. We pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds that through our ears, we might be able to grow in our understanding of the gift you've given us of Christ, not only to increase our intellect, our knowledge, but an understanding that shapes the way we see things, the way that we react and respond, and therefore the way that we live and love you. Father, bless us to listen to your voice. May your spirit be at work to shape us in mind, in spirit, in action, that our lives might be lived out to your glory and the joy that is promised to those who walk in your ways. We pray this in the incomparable name of Jesus. Amen. Juliet said to Romeo, What is a rose? By any other name, it would still smell as sweet. In other words, as she was pondering and musing and speaking to him, though not knowing he was there, she's saying, it really doesn't matter what name you go by, whatever you call yourself, you're still the same person. And so in short, she'd come to the philosophical conclusion that 
Names don't matter. And that may be true when it comes to plants, to roses, but I'm not sure it's true for people. A number of years ago, I read an interesting uh, psychological study of a very prominent psychologist, college professor, who had studied 15,000 juvenile delinquents and 15,000 young adults who had never been in trouble in their lives at all. And he found that in his study, that those who disliked their names or had any sense of discomfort with their names were more than four times likely than those who liked their names or were at least neutral about their names. Those who disliked their names were more than four times likely to get themselves into trouble, whether it is just through mischief during their teen years or actually into criminal, uh, criminal activity. The names they determined affected the way that the person wearing the name saw themselves. It gave them their identity. It gave them a sense of self-esteem, a sense of their value. And so while Juliet was saying she would still love her boyfriend no matter what his name was, at least for many of us living in the Western culture, names do matter. They're important to us. Biblically speaking, names also have a significance. It's probably not so much for the psychological aspect of things that we are concerned with, but they are a reference, or often they reflect some aspect of either the character that, is, that God is saying that he's going to build into this person or reflection in some way of their role in God's redemptive history. We begin even at the very beginning with the man Adam, the first man, Hebrew Adam. If you want to give him a nickname, his nickname would be Dusty. Because Adam literally means from the dust or from the earth. We go into God's redemptive history, and he took the man Abram, and he promised to bless him, and that through him he would bring blessing to all the nations. And while there was nothing wrong with the name Abram itself, God changed it and said, your name is no longer Abram, but Abraham. In other words, you will be the father of many nations, is what Abraham means. Even Jesus, as he was walking, he encounters his disciple to be man that we know as Peter, who at the time was going by the name of Simon, which means shifting sand. Jesus says to him, no longer will you be shifting sand, no longer will you be called Simon, but you will be called Petros or Cephas, the rock, and effectively changed his name from Sandy to Rocky, which does seem to be more appropriate for the strength that we have for him. Can you imagine Sylvester Stallone doing a number of movies called Sandy, and you're going back over and over and over? I mean, just doesn't carry the same kind of connotation. But Peter, who through God's blessing would become a foundation among with the other apostles of the church that Christ was going to build, he changed him in character. He changed him in name. And his name change reflects both the promise and what became the reality. Well, this morning we come to the birth of the babe from Bethlehem, the one whose name was selected by God and given to his human adopted father, Joseph, while Joseph was pondering and sleeping. And through a dream, an angel appeared to him and declared not only that were things okay for him between he and his betrothed wife-to-be, but that this child that she was carrying carried a significance as well, and that Joseph's responsibility was to name him Jesus, which means he will save his people from their sins. 
Now, it's interesting because this is also in the fulfillment of the prophecy, as, the, as Matthew records, because as we look into the text that we read in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill, fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I don't know about you, but there was time that I would look at that and say, these things just don't seem to be equaling up. We just hear how God said to him, the angel appears to him, and you're going to call him, you're going to name him Jesus. And that's to fulfill the prophet to say that you're going to name him Emmanuel. And as I looked at it, and even as I learned to study Greek, Jesus and Emmanuel don't seem to be the same name. And so some may question, how is this a prophecy fulfilled? Well, the reality is the name that was given to him of Jesus, which is significant as we're going to look at this morning. In the person of Jesus, we find that God is with us. Because God is with us, he is able to save us from our sins. And so while his name was Jesus, he is clearly and rightly called Emmanuel, God in our presence, God in our midst. So the prophecy was fulfilled, even in a way that may not be clear uh, at, at first look. But as we look at what God has said in this text, as we consider the significance of the name this morning, Let's just break down what, the, what, what Joseph was told. His name shall be Jesus. Now, when you hear the name Jesus, this is a rhetorical question. You don't actually have to answer it. You're free to if you would like. What comes to mind? And for most people, they might be thinking of him words. You hear the name Jesus, and it's a wonderful, glorious, majestic. There could be other names but we have some idea, and we recognize that the name is special. We've been conditioned to that. Whether you grew up in church, whether you're just part of Western culture, you know that there is something that is different, that that name is, is special. Or as the person who writing the song in the 70s tells us, there's something about that name. I wish that that songwriter would actually expand on that and tell us what it is that he thinks that there is about that name and not just not leave us saying, there's something about that name, and then singing, there's something about that name five, six, 10, 20 times over. Because there is something about that name, and it is something that is worth considering. But, and so we are aware of that, or at least we think of something on the promises when we hear of the name of Jesus. But at the time that Jesus was actually born into, to hear the name Jesus would have been not caught anybody's attention any more than to hear a child being called by their parents Jimmy, or Joe, or John. The name Jesus essentially was one of the most common names of little Jewish boys in that time throughout the whole Middle East. The name Jesus is simply the Greek translation of the Jewish name Joshua. Just as there's a lot of Joshua's in many church youth groups and Many Christian schools, anywhere where Christians are gathered or even non-Christians are gathered, it's a common name in our culture. So it was even more so at that point. It was a very common name, very ordinary name. The name itself, despite the definition that he will save the people from their sins, it was one that was common. People weren't necessarily conscious or concerned about the definition. Part of the reason it was so popular is because two men during his Hebrew history had actually carried that name, and both were significant, both were very important, both remained very popular, and consequently, people named their sons after them. The first man, 
those of you who are Bible students are probably very well aware of is Joshua, the man who led Israel into the promised land. That Joshua was born during Israel's 400 years of captivity and was probably about 40 years old when God raised up a deliverer named Moses to lead the people out of uh, their, their captivity and into the promised land. And yet Moses was not the man who was lead, would lead the people into the promised land. Well, God raised Moses up to go and declare to the Pharaoh, let my people go that they may come and worship me. And after God kind of nudged the Pharaoh a little bit with a series of plagues that made him all the more, all the more willing to let go, let go three, thousand, three million people uh, and, the, uh, and the economic benefits that they gave, finally let them go. And as they came into the promised land, Moses, recognizing that they needed a plan, sent 12 spies out into this land that God had given to them, 12 of them. The 12 went out, and they looked at the land, and they came back and said, we've checked out the real estate. We have some good news, and we have some bad news. The good news is that it's as good as we could have imagined. Everything God told us, it is that good. Even more than our imaginations were able to comprehend, the land is that good. Bad news? There are people who already live there, and they're a whole lot bigger than us. In fact, they're giants. There's no way in the world that we're going to be able to take this land from them. And so while that might be ours, we suggest we look for real estate property someplace in a neighborhood more akin with our gifts and our abilities. Except two of the spies, a man named Hoshea and a man named Caleb, said in a minority report, but if God has promised this to us, then it's ours. It doesn't matter what appearances are, let's go and take the land. Moses, recognizing the faith and the faithfulness of this man impressed with him, told him, no longer is your name Hoshea, but you are now, you are now Jehovah Hoshea. Say that one three or four times really, really fast. Jehovah Hoshea, which became, got shortened to Jehoshea or Joshua. It's the naming of the first Joshua, a man who then, because of God's providence, Moses being the deliverer, but allowing Joshua to be the man to lead them into the promised land, he was representation to all of the people of Israel that God does as he promises. And so he, his name was prominent and was revered through all of Israel history. Now, the second Joshua is not as well known, at least even to many who study their Bibles. Joshua was a high priest during the time that the Israelites were allowed to return after 70 years in exile. They were allowed to return to Jerusalem, led by uh, Nehemiah as a governor, Ezra. There was also a band of priests. Among them was Joshua, who would later become the high priest, one that was considered great in Israel, respected, revered, godly. And he came back, and it was among the chief leaders to help not only rebuild the temple, but once the building was restored, or even prior to the building restored, to restore proper worship, that people would seek after God and encounter God and be blessed by God and be reminded of God, that, that this Joshua, the high priest, was one of the ones who represented God to the people. So there were two men. One a military leader, one a spiritual leader, were prominent in the history of Israel, 
that were so revered that people, even as we do today, named their sons after these two men from their own heritage. So commonly that the name, his name shall be Jesus itself didn't necessarily raise anybody's attention, but it should also remind us that Jesus, even in the common aspect of it, became like us. Almost, it would be indistinguishable from us in many ways because fully he was man. Common, ordinary, except in man without sin, and in that fully man also happened to be God. But he shall be called Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. There's something in our text that is not easily recognizable in the English, or in other words, it doesn't jump out us, at us in the English as it does in the Greek, that really calls for us for a comparison and a contrast. Now, when we look back, when I share, it'll be easy to see from now on, but it's not something that, that draws our attention. But when the angel is saying, he shall save the people from their sins, it'd be easy for us to say, well, of course. But as Joseph was hearing this, and as those who read this in its original language would realize that there is a contrast that is being made between this Jesus, this Joshua, and the Joshuas who had come before. In other words, it doesn't just read, and he shall save people from their, his people from their sins, as if it's a job description. But in that job description, there is the contrast where it would say this, and, and he will save, their save his people from their sins. In other words, it's pointing us back to the other Joshuas. Joshua the leader, faithful, filled with faith. But Hebrews 4 tells us that though he led his people into the promised land, he was not able to lead them into peace or into actual rest. The promise that God has given to those who will be saved from their sin. Now, part of the reason we don't see that is because of our misunderstanding of the promised land that Joshua led us into, led his people into. We often hear about the promised land not only being a historical reality, a place, a geography that God had provided for the people to take and inhabit and to dwell in, but we tend to make it a metaphor for heaven. I heard that when I was a relatively new believer. But I want to ask you a question. How many enemies do you anticipate having in heaven? Should be none. How much unrest, how much difficulty, conflict do you anticipate having? We're told none. And yet, in that promised land, even as they were taking that land, and all the time that they were in that land, they had conflict, they had temptations, they had enemies even as they had been delivered into the promised land and the promised land had been delivered to them. So it's important for us to recognize, even in the story of Joshua, who led the people into the promised land, he did not lead them into the eternal promise. The promised land that he was given is not a representation of heaven, but a, it is a representation of our sanctification, our life in Christ. In other words, when we come to Christ, we receive the full benefits of our salvation. We are truly saved. We are truly in fellowship with God. We are truly alive and will live forever in the presence of God with his blessing. And yet in this life, we have many trials, many temptations, 
many difficulties. Some of them are external opponents. Many of them continue to be the reality of sin that is at war within us in our lives. Because though we are fully saved and Christ has already secured what we need, nevertheless, in our brokenness and in this world, we have the mixture of both the benefit of the salvation and the trials of this world. Joshua led the people into the inheritance of the promised land, but at this point in their history, at this point in their life, it was not all that was to come. He was able to lead them into the benefit that was very real. They were God's people. They had inherited the land. They inhabited the land. And yet because they had difficulties, they were not able to fully enjoy all of the promises that was for the Joshua that was to come. And the other Joshua, the high priest, although he stood before the Lord on behalf of his people, was a representation to the people of the holiness and the purity of God. He wasn't even able to save himself from his own sins, much less the people from theirs. The story is told to us in Zechariah chapter 3, and I'm going to ask that you turn with me there. If it's, it's not difficult to find, just turn back two books and, and um, find Malachi, and it's right before that. It's probably just a few pages in most of your Bibles. And here Zechariah the prophet has a vision. In his vision, he sees Joshua the high priest in the presence of the Lord. What I consider one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, one that's worthy of looking at and reading over and over again. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. It's a short chapter, so we'll read the entirety of it. And there, get a picture of not only the shortcomings of Joshua the high priest, but the fulfillment of of Joshua, who was born and given to us to save us from our sin. Verse 1. Then the Lord showed me Joshua the high priest standing before an angel of the Lord, who most Bible scholars would tell you is in a pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, it is Christ standing there before he was the, birth, uh, the babe of Bethlehem. So Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing there at his right hand to accuse him. Now, a lot of people will stop right there and say, no, wait a second, why is Satan in heaven? Why is he in the presence of the Lord? I mean, he's already been booted. And why, as the high priest is standing before God, is Satan there to accuse him? The answer is, I don't know. The most I can figure from this, and as I've been able to discover, is that while Satan no longer dwells or lives in heaven, he's apparently allowed to visit from time to time. And he shows up to do what he does, what he enjoys doing, which is to point his bony finger at anybody that he's able to and point out the flaws the in, uh, and the, the sin in their life. And that's what he was there doing. In the presence of the Lord, he was there to accuse Joshua, the high priest. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. In other words, the Lord says to Satan when he starts pointing his finger, Just shut up. And he goes on. Was this man not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing there before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. 
And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is apparently an interactive vision, not ones that we usually see. But Zechariah, who was watching this all unfold, now he jumps into the mix. And while Joshua, the high priest, is being clothed with pure clothes, Zechariah says, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. In other words, give him a hat to go with his robe. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. They are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This passage is just, pardon the pun, but pregnant with vital theological implications. Things that are essential for us to benefit and to rejoice in in this holiday season, to understand the gift that God has given to us. We begin with something that seems relatively innocent or relatively simple in imagery. But right after the Lord tells Satan to be quiet, he then says to him, is this man not like a, a stick pulled out of a fire? Now, it's been cold recently. Many of you have probably already cleaned out your chimneys and have started your first fires, and if you haven't, you will in the days to come. So think about those fires for a moment. You've put on the wood. And then you throw the sticks in for the kindling upon that. And for whatever the reason, it might possess you to remove some of the kindling. Take a stick out or save it for another time. Now, when you choose that stick, is there a reason you choose a particular stick? Did one of the sticks speak to you and say, let me make my case for me? Does it just happen to be a prettier stick than any other stick? Did they compel you? Is it just one stick is better than another stick? Obviously, that's ridiculous. If you pick a stick out, you just pick a stick out. It's because you chose to pick a stick out. The stick had nothing to say about it. The stick had nothing to do with it. And essentially, the Lord is reminding us that that's the way that he works with us as well. See, Satan's saying to this man, this high priest, this man who is holy, this man who is faithful to the Lord, when Satan is saying, here's everything that's wrong with this guy, the Lord doesn't say, you know what, you're wrong. You're wrong about him. He's a good one. The Lord just says, it doesn't matter. Isn't he a stick that I have chosen out? And it's a declaration of God's sovereignty and God's sovereignty over salvation and that God has chosen and he has pulled this man out, not through any merit of his own, but he just simply pulled him out because he pulled him out. That this man was like a stick that deserved to be burned, that could have been burned, but was pulled out from being burned because God sovereignly was at work in his life. It's important for us to recognize that God is sovereign over the gift of salvation that he gives. And the imagery of Joshua here is interesting because Joshua as the high priest would have been standing with robes that were beautiful, 
stunning. Better than anything else that anyone else would have. The closest that I can imagine that we would see, at least in the Western culture, is if you watch some of the, the British celebrations, coronations, weddings, where they are ornate, spotless, valuable. And the high priest, in addition to his robe, would have also had a breastplate that was speckled with jewels. That's what Joshua wore. But here it says he was standing as one in filthy rags. And it's a reminder of us that as Joshua represents the best of humanity has to offer, even the best of what humanity has to offer in comparison to the glory of the Lord, in the presence of the glory of the Lord, looks like a filthy rag. But God's response to the one who is dressed in the filthy rag is not, I picked you out of the fire. And everything that Satan says is true. You need to just go clean yourself up a little bit before you get presentable before you come into my presence. But God does hear. And so the one who is in as filthy robes says, I will remove your filthy robes and I will clothe you in those robes that are pure. And at Zechariah's suggestion, give you a pure hat too. So from head to toe, you will be spotless. Scripture tells us that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And that as we trust in Christ, that he has taken upon himself all of our filthiness. And yet as we have trusted in Christ, we are now dressed in all of his righteousness. It's a tremendous exchange that takes place at the time that we trust in Jesus. And it's the same picture of what's taking place here as Joshua, representing the best of humanity, is being transformed, made holy and acceptable before God as he is vividly and physically being changed, so are you who has trusted Christ, stripped of all that is unclean, dressed in all that is holy, simply at the time that you believe. For the Scripture tells us this, that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, for we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, when we are in Christ, we are the righteousness, that we are covered, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And as God looks at you, He is not seeing you as one, no matter what you have to offer, as in filthy rags. But in Christ, He is seeing the glory of His holiness and of His grace. To such a degree that the Apostle Paul declares to us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, it doesn't matter what the reality is. Christ, having paid the price for us, has become stained with our sin in order that you would be able to wear his righteousness. And now, wearing his righteousness, no matter what anybody charges you with, 
That is not your identity. Your identity is in the name Christian, wearing Christ, name of Christ, because you have trusted in Jesus who has come and has saved his people from their sin. Now, someone might say, well, but doesn't God deal with my sin? And the answer is absolutely. And he does so through conviction, but not through condemnation. In other words, he exposes the reality of our hearts, the, uh, that beginning with our behavior that traces down into the, our, the, the deep parts of our hearts and exposes that to us. Conviction, in other words, helping us to understand that we are wrong and that we are guilty and there is a need for change, that conviction. And as we are broken over the fact that we can't do anything about it, we can't pay the debt, we can't fix ourselves, it turns our attention to the price having been paid through the gift that was given in the person of Jesus. And a transformation takes place. The condemnation that says, you're no good, you'll never measure up, is not coming from God, as we see from this particular passage. That's Satan who's standing and prepared to accuse, to shame, and not give you hope. But Christ is our hope. Holiday season, and now many of you are preparing if you haven't finished your shopping for those that you love, those that you know well. It's not even December, so I assume very few of you are completely done, but perhaps a few. And a few of you perhaps have been planning for a long time to give the perfect gift to someone that you know. The perfect gift is one that is deep and that is thoughtful that meets not only a need, but will bring joy and delight to somebody, the person who is the beneficiary of it. And oftentimes, the perfect gift requires thought and long-time preparation before it's delivered to, for the person to experience the joy and the delight that they will have in the gift. As we come in this Christmas season, we recognize that Jesus is the gift that God has given to us, the perfect gift. In his fullness, in his humanity, in all that is work, we recognize that. We gather to worship to celebrate that. But his very name is a celebration. It's a reminder to us of the significance of that gift. Because Jesus is a name that was being prepared for God's entire work of redemption. From the time of deliverance of his people until the birth of Christ, the name was known to men, both great and yet unequal to the thing that is necessary most to deliver the people, to free them. Gave a glimpse of something to be desired that they couldn't fulfill that was fulfilled in the person of Christ. Jesus was born to set us free from our sin. God had been long planning. God delivered because we are in need. But when he delivered, when you received Christ, that gift not only did a work then, but it continues to do a work that we need to open up and consider again today during this season. And considering the name of Jesus and what it promises and what it signifies, that the name of Jesus, he will be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. He is speaking to the believer He's speaking to the believer who understands this and who is already celebrating and is reminded and rejoicing in all that is yours in Christ. He's speaking to many of you 
who through this season are going to become discouraged and depressed because the season seems to bring that. And even though you are in Christ, you feel alienated and alone and unworthy. And the reason that you feel, un- uh, that feel unworthy is because you're alone. And the reason that you feel alone is because you feel unworthy. It's just this vicious spiral and cycle. But the name of Jesus says he has saved his people, shall save his people from their sins. Jesus, the Joshua, the priest who we looked at, gives us an object lesson for an action that I want you to do, which is to ask yourself whose robes you are wearing. See, if you have trusted Christ, it's not a matter of you undressing and getting cleaned up. It's a matter of God who is at work, who has taken from you all that is unclean and placed upon you Christ's righteousness. Since Jesus, the name that we celebrate this season, reminds us that he has saved us or shall save us, save his people when we are looking back on it. He has. It's not about your worthiness. It's about God's grace that is given in the person of Jesus. And the name is speaking to those who are not in Christ. Because no matter how much you fancy yourself up, presence of a holy God, what you have is nothing like filthy rags. And yet, you don't need to live in those rags. Simply by trusting the reason that God sent Jesus to us that we celebrate this season, you too will be stripped of all that is unclean, clothed in all that is righteous, if you simply believe. We come and we celebrate this season in a number of ways. But ultimately, and we begin this Advent day celebrating because of the gift of God and the person of Jesus and name Jesus because he has saved us from our sin. That's what we need more than anything else the promises that go with that of being cleansed, restored relationship, set free, peace, even though it doesn't make sense, and joy regardless of the circumstance. What the early Joshua's could not do, the new Joshua, Jesus the Christ, has done for us. Let's celebrate him. Father, we do thank you for Christ and for what he's done. We thank you for the benefit that we have received. And we, as we consider it, may even be left speechless. It's not our words that are necessary. Lord, open our hearts and our minds that we may rejoice in the freedom that has been purchased for us. That which no man was able to accomplish, the man who was also God, has done for us. And even as the promise to the other Joshua was to walk in the ways, and that on the day, in one day, all would be changed. Lord, allow us to see in this Christmas season 
the birth of Christ in order that he might die and rise again. For in this we find our true deliverance. In this we find reason for joy. In this we have our hope and salvation. Lord, we know this. Help us to believe.